Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Hello, it's Friday, April 17th, and this week has been news packed. Alex, do you want to start off? Maybe we can discuss Y Combinator's newest decision. Yeah, Y Combinator had a really interesting announcement this week. The way I understand it, companies that participate in Y Combinator give Y Combinator a 7% stake in their companies. Up until now, Y Combinator's policy had been that it would maintain that 7% stake through the first priced round. But this week, it announced that it actually would pick and choose the decision whether it would keep its pro rata position in a company would not be automatic. And to me, this brings with a lot of signaling risk for CEOs of Y Combinator companies that aren't able to bring Y Combinator along with them into a deal. Absolutely. So the firm takes a 7% stake, and I guess it has historically maintained that stake least for priced seed and series A rounds. And now I guess it'll go down to 4% in some cases. I don't really know what drove the decision. I mean, obviously, just by sheer dint of the number of classes that are going through the accelerator program right now, you'd think that this had to happen. But uh, it certainly does make it a lot clearer to outsiders, which companies YC thinks has staying power. It also comes at a particularly noticeable time when the economy seems to be heading on the downslope. Mm-hmm. It does seem to send somewhat of a discouraging message to white combinators, entrepreneurs. You're right. It is interesting timing in that sense and probably not ideal for anyone. In other big news, Uber yesterday said that it's withdrawing its 2020 guidance for gross bookings, adjusted net revenue, and adjusted EBITDA, which had been provided originally on February 6th. The company has not offered new guidance. Uh, Not surprising. I don't know what's going to happen with Uber. Yeah, it's such a tough market. Nobody's going anywhere these days. Everybody has to shelter in place. Drivers are looking for new work, and Uber is reportedly helping them find new jobs, but definitely a hard time for to be in the transportation business. Yeah. Also, I think a sort of an underreported story this week was Lyft has finally gotten into the delivery business. It's working with certain vendors and trying to get some of its drivers work. It's trying to put cash in their pockets by enlisting them in a program where they're going to be delivering, quote, essential items like groceries, medical supplies, home goods, which is great. Yeah. It's great to see, especially because Lyft's drivers are not employees or they are employees. There's always been that strange duality. Mm -hmm. And at least Lyft is going through the motions of trying to take care of its drivers. I feel for these companies that have these networks of gig employees, whether it's Uber or Lyft or DoorDash or even Airbnb, how do they maintain those networks through this kind of downturn? It's very difficult. It's so difficult that Airbnb actually raised another billion dollars in debt. We talked about a massive haul that it secured last week. Well, this week produced another. The company didn't name investors this time. Last week, it was Silver Lake who led the raise uh, with participation from BlackRock, Eaton Vance Corp, Fidelity, T. Rowe Price. Either way, it's looking like a 2020 IPO is not on the itinerary. 
Yeah, it definitely makes sense for them to raise more money. As soon as they announced that $1 billion raise, the first $1 billion raise, folks in the industry said that that money wouldn't last them very long, perhaps less than a year. So now they have at least more than one year of runway, which is good. In very separate news, Verizon has agreed to buy the video conferencing company BlueJeans Network for less than $500 million, according to the Wall Street Journal. BlueJeans Network has been around since 2009. I remember talking to Battery Ventures, one of its two major shareholders, I think NEA is the other, years ago. This is a company that apparently has been widely embraced at enterprises. It doesn't have the same recognition as Zoom, which of course has crossed over into the consumer world in the last four to six weeks. But apparently it has a great reputation on the security front, so companies trust it. And Verizon had evidently been eyeing the company for a year or so, so I guess maybe now the price was right. Of course, another big theme for this week was layoffs. True. Hopefully it won't be a theme for every episode of Strictly VC Download, but this week, many layoffs again. One company that caught my interest was View, which is a dynamic glass company that accepted a $1.1 billion check from SoftBank in late 2018 and conducted a layoff of undisclosed size, though I imagine it was not minor. One former employee who declined to talk to me directly said on LinkedIn that the company had, quote, cleaned house. Of course, construction, where the company plays... And real estate, more broadly speaking, has been totally walloped like everything else in this downturn. And that largely explains a very big cut over at Opendoor, the company that people use to buy and sell properties online. Opendoor had raised around $4 billion in debt and equity starting from its founding in 2013. About $1.3 billion of that was in equity, the rest debt. It laid off 35% of its staff this week, though, as I wrote The company was kind of starting to pare down well ahead of this crisis around COVID-19. So for example, according to Bloomberg, last summer it let 50 people go. It also told 200 to 300 of its employees around the country that they needed to move to its Phoenix office if they wanted to keep their jobs. I'm guessing because of school and life that a lot of those people are no longer with the company. Open Door and View and a lot of other companies that have been laying people off including Oyo Hotels, including the robotics company Zoom, which is reportedly down to around 100 people from 1,000. There is that common thread of SoftBank. Uh, As we all know, it really stuffed these companies with fresh capital. And it turns out that's especially problematic in a downturn of this nature because it's really hard to turn things around when you've tried to supersize. Yes, we mentioned SoftBank once again in the podcast. (laughs) Drink. Connie, I know you've been working on a story on deal terms and how they're changing. Tell us about it. Yes, I am hoping to publish it maybe today, maybe tomorrow, maybe Monday, the latest. I've talked to a lot of people in the industry about this who say, in some cases, we're starting to see more onerous terms reintroduced into term sheets, some terms that we haven't seen since 2008 and before that 2000. It seems to be a specific type of investor that is inserting these terms or at least trying to get away with them right now. Would that be a vulture investor, Connie? This would be a vulture investor. uh, And more specifically, some of the growth stage investors, I think in um, Boston and uh, the East Coast more generally. I'll tell you much more about that in my story. But another thing I've seen this week that's very interesting and telling is how many companies are turning to inside backers for funding. So there've been tons and tons of funding announcements this week, but I'd say a healthy percentage of them are companies that have just reopened their rounds to insiders. Among the companies that I think were in the newsletter just yesterday were Aluxio, which is a San Mateo-based open source cloud data orchestration software company. 
Attentive, which is a company that had raised $40 million in Series B funding last summer, followed by $70 million in Series C funding at the beginning of this year, and just extended that Series C by another $40 million. And Stripe, the 10-year-old San Francisco-based payments company, it just added $600 million in fresh funding to a Series G that originally closed last fall with $250 million. It's all about runway. It is truly. On a lighter note, a lot of my colleagues over at TechCrunch, where I have a second job, have been talking today about the new Apple SE phone. Alex, you are an Apple fanatic. What are your thoughts about this new phone? Yeah, well, I'm also the procurement manager for our interns. And (laughs) one of our interns recently received an iPhone 7 and the used device cost, I am ashamed to say, around 300 bucks. So I would have loved to have bought him this sweet new iPhone SE, which is exactly the same as the iPhone 8. It even has the same chip as the iPhone 11. It's really amazing, actually. And it kind of calls into question the whole business model and pricing of Apple iPhones. I certainly don't know if it's worth spending $1,000 anymore for an iPhone 10, which I have. This iPhone SE has a lot of stuff The only real weaknesses of the phone are the battery, which seems to be around 60% of the battery for the iPhone 11. Anyway, as you can tell, I am clearly very interested in the subject. Well, to your point about the kids, so my colleagues were saying their kids are already begging for these because, you know, kids, teenagers have been priced out of the iPhone market in recent years. So at $399, this model is accessible if you have a job or I guess if you promise to wash your parents' car 50 times. Also, I think the fact that it's, is it smaller than the iPhone 8 or it's the same size? It's smaller than the iPhone 11. It's exactly the same dimensions as the iPhone 8. Okay. Well, there's certainly a lot of people who kind of miss having a smaller form factor, including my sister, who I think is using the same phone that she's had for... An iPhone 4. Is it an iPhone 4? She loves it, though. She swears by it. In fact, I would probably be using my BlackBerry if not for you. You shamed me into ditching it after a sustained campaign of at least a year, as I recall. Speaking of sustained campaigns, as corny a transition as that is, we are talking today with Matt Ocko of DCVC for our newest Strictly VC download interview. Matt is a super interesting guy, and frankly, I wanted to talk with him, we wanted to talk with him, because he was among the first investors on Twitter who were ringing the alarm about COVID-19 back in early January. And of course, he now looks prescient, not alarmist. So we wanted to talk to him about those early warnings. We wanted to talk to him about whether he thinks we've made any real progress since then, and also when he thinks we might collectively return to some semblance of a normal life. Hope you enjoy it. But first, a word from our sponsor. Saster, the world's largest non-vendor B2B software community, is hosting 15,000 founders and VCs at Saster Summit, bridging the gap. This one-day summit on April 22nd is 100% digital, 100% free, and features in-depth sessions with the leaders of Slack, Twilio, Cloudflare, Bessemer Venture Partners, Initialized Capital, and more. Register at register. Sastersummit.com.
And now our conversation with Matt Ocko, the co-founder of the venture firm Data Collective, or DCVC as it's known. The firm has bets across a wide number of sectors and industries, including cybersecurity, computational biology, and smart agriculture. We wanted to talk with Matt about some of the firm's portfolio companies that are trying to help address and potentially contain the coronavirus. Apologies in advance for the audio. We're still figuring out this podcasting thing, but we also had a pretty lousy connection. Thank you so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Today, I'd love to focus on COVID-19 as much as possible. You've been doing a lot of work around how we tackle this terrible coronavirus, and I wanted to hear from you what you're working on, uh, as well as, I guess, how quickly or not you think we get ourselves out of this mess. I wanted to talk to you specifically today because I have to say, Matt, I follow you on Twitter. We've been friends for a while, and you were tweeting about COVID-19 back in January, which was sort of ahead of anyone else that I really noticed online. In fact, you had warned about a plane that was coming into San Francisco the night that I was flying out of SFO and it raised some alarms for me. I almost canceled my trip because of it. What did you see back in January that the rest of us missed? Well, my family has been working with the Chinese government at a reasonably high level since the late 1970s, starting with my uh, my dad. And I, I kind of grew up in that environment and as a professional, started helping my dad, uh, who's a Chinese legal expert, pro bono, on things like constructing the laws around China's NASDAQ equivalent, its stock markets, uh, the joint dollar renminbi investment legislation, uh, advice on technology development and venture capital development, all, all the way back to the early 1990s. And so I'm not an anti-China hawk by any means, but I, I do have an understanding of some of the idiosyncrasies of Chinese culture reflected in its, its government, if you will. Same way every country has idio, idiosyncrasies. Did you spend time there as a child? Did you live there at some point? I was in and out of China on, on, on and off since... Uh, 1995 as an adult through 2017, through the end of 2017. I unfortunately, or fortunately, I guess, depending on whether you value uh, age and wisdom versus coronavirus vulnerability, I'm old enough that China was completely locked down when I was a child, but I actually spent time in Hong Kong and Taiwan as a child. So spent a, a fair amount of time in my youth in Chinese language and Chinese culture environments. So just to, to tie a bow around um, why, why I was alarmed in January, I was in and out of China on both business and pro bono advice for their government throughout the early 2000s. I remember the SARS crisis very vividly and the behavior of the government in the SARS crisis was driven by one of the idiosyncrasies that I was referring to, which is a focus on face and reputation and an extreme sensitivity to negative perception or shame or humiliation at every level of, of government and culture. And so 
there is an, an unfortunate trend. I'm not saying this is universal in China for people to manage upwards, especially in the government, and tell their higher ups what they want to hear to avoid shame, to avoid loss of reputation, and to kind of kick the can down the road or hope that things get better or circumstances on the ground change favorably in the face of denial or equivocation. And so a potentially highly contagious virus originating in an area known for its wet markets and pinpointed by a number of pandemic surveillance companies, including one of our own, as a likely source of further pandemic outbreaks was very alarming to me. And likewise, I was primed by my personal experience not to believe soothing government prescriptions that all is well remain calm like uh, Kevin Bacon at the end of Animal House. What do you think this all means for the future of global supply chains? Does this mean that that dream of a global supply chain is no longer what it once was? I don't think the pandemic by itself is the forcing function for changes in global supply chain alone. I think it has exposed a lot of fragility and a lot of vulnerability in global supply chain. And I think there will be changes in things like maintaining larger stockpiles, for example. I think the real shot across the bow for change was when India and China both announced that key supply chain components and or finished goods ranging from PPE, personal protective uh, equipment, key inputs to the manufacture of pharmaceuticals or even finished pharmaceuticals would be restricted from export. And so a supply chain isn't very good if you can't rely on it when you need it the most. So I think the lesson for the US and Europe is that we have to go back to making stuff. We have to be able to make stuff. We actually make a lot of stuff in, in fairness, but we have to make more of it. We have to make more of it at scale. And we have to do it at a high level of quality and without the very unpleasant environmental impact that China and India have borne and their people have borne as part of industrialization and outsourcing. The real standout in our portfolio to your question is actually not a supply chain optimization company, but it's a company called Zymergen, which is able to use massive amounts of AI to understand the genetics of microorganisms at an unprecedented level and reprogram them in a highly automated way supported by uh, uh, really advanced robotics into tiny molecular scale factories. By way of example, they just announced that some of the key films, very expensive, very high-end, very complex products made outside of the United States that go into things like your iPhone or, or, or your Android, either on the screen or in other, uh, other key components, they can now make 
cleanly, effectively CO2 free at a higher level of quality than petroleum chemistry in a square kilometer industrial hellscape somewhere in coastal China, and they can do it at industrial scale. And so Zymergen is an exemplar that is able to bring key manufacturing and things like agriculture and food supply chain inputs, specialty chemicals, electronics, other medical inputs home from around the world. And I think you're going to see that accelerate dramatically. Actually, I have interviewed uh, Josh Hoffman in the past of Zymergen. I think what they're working on, Ginkgo Bioworks, Twist Bioscience, is so interesting. And I hadn't really thought about how this is an opportunity for them to accelerate their businesses. But I am really interested, Matt, in your businesses that are running at COVID-19 aggressively, including Curative, based in Los Angeles. I just wondered if you could tell me a little bit about that company and maybe some of your other efforts. Sure. A vaccine is a long, long way away, unfortunately, although we're obviously cheering on those efforts. So in the near term, you have to make COVID-19 a treatable disease, especially for vulnerable populations. And you need to prophylactically protect the brave healthcare workers who are fighting this and first responders, the people who work in producing our food supply and delivering it from the consequences of the virus. The best way to do that is likely with an, an antibody therapy. So essentially giving people injectable immunity against the virus. And uh, one of our companies, Abcelera, was able to generate tremendous uh, insight into immunity producing antibodies in just 11 days after receiving a blood sample from a COVID-19 survivor. And in a few short weeks after that, have enough demonstration of likely clinical utility and ability to scale that they uh, closed a, a very impressive deal with, with Eli Lilly and is joining them in, in driving this to the clinic in July, if not earlier. I, I think that exemplifies something that's important about what's going on in the venture world, at least, which is that the companies that can have the greatest impact are generally not the ones pivoting to do something new, but the companies that have been thinking obsessively about large-scale, societal-scale problems for quite some time. Abseller was able to do this because they've been working with DARPA and the U.S. Department of Defense on real-time pandemic response for years. Matt, you said they'll enter into clinical trials with Eli Lilly this summer. From there, how long is the process expected to take before it could potentially receive a look from the FDA? If there are good clinical results out of definitive trials during the summertime, approval will be very rapid. That's number one. And number two, this is all gated by how long it takes to produce the actual treatment. So all of these companies, all of their pharmaceutical partners are doing everything that they can to be able to scale up to tens, if not hundreds of millions of doses of these antibody therapies. But that takes time, it takes money, it takes planning. So even if uh, great results happen in July, there's going to be some delay in getting this to absolutely every person that needs it which comes back to why testing is so important 
and why multiple companies in our portfolio, including Curative, are aggressively driving population scale testing. Matt, it's kind of a, an obnoxious question, but of course you're an investor. How do companies like Epsela end up making money? If this is successful, they want it to reach as many people as possible, obviously, no matter who can afford it. So how do you price something like this? That's where enlightened government plays a role. Absolar is a joint U.S.-Canadian company. And in each case, the government of Canada, for example, and, and I believe, uh, based on all indications, the government of the U.S. will essentially prepay the company a reasonable amount for their therapy, whether it's to them directly or through their go-to-market partner, Eli Lilly. And the company will receive a, a fair, but in no way predatory or unfair price for its life-saving and essential work. And those governments will support as many doses for as many people in the population as humanly possible. Just to be clear, does the company have a licensing deal with Eli Lilly? Does Eli Lilly own a stake in the company? Eli Lilly has a large and important deal with the company, and they're working very closely together, and that's all I can really say. But the most important thing to emphasize is that Lilly, which recently made sure that one of its core products, insulin, is affordable to every American, even in these difficult economic circumstances, and Abcelera are jointly resolved to produce as much of these potentially uh, life-saving medicines uh, for COVID-19 as humanly possible. And that's what they're focused on. In all of these cases, brilliant people could be doing other stuff. They could be working at a hedge fund, speculating in stocks, and instead they're working 20 hours a day, many of them in PPE, spending time apart from their families, driving cures for what hopefully will be a substantial portion of the global population. And those are the kind of people that we like to back. Matt, when it comes to Curative, this is also a really interesting company that is making coronavirus test kits. What were they working on before COVID-19 took hold in the U.S.? I think there are two companies in our portfolio that are really good examples. Lucera was working for years on at-home sub 20 minute detection of infectious uh, diseases, specifically viruses that have a clear negative impact on human health. And their go-to-market product, which they were getting ready to roll out, was a very fast, simple test for influenza A and B. And this is a big breakthrough. It would allow people not to go to a clinic and either get infected by other people with flu or turn around if they are sick and infect other people while waiting for a flu test in the doctor's office. And it allows the allocation of medicines on an intelligent basis to people if they have the flu. For example, if you have the flu, you shouldn't be taking antibiotics. That just drives antibiotic resistance. But maybe you should be taking Tamiflu depending on how old you are. Lucera has been able to extend their technology to detect COVID-19. I can't comment on their commercial or regulatory plans, but I can say 
given that COVID-19 and the underlying coronaviruses are likely to be around for a while and overlap with flu season, a single fast at-home test for influenza A and B and one or more coronavirus strains would be a very interesting thing to have. So that's another example of a company that didn't seem very glamorous compared to scooter companies that are written out uh, about a lot, but was focused on a societal scale, urgent problem that turns out to be even more important now. Lucera is really interesting, but just to be clear, it hasn't been cleared by the FDA. It's not for sale in the United States, even to test the good old fashioned flu at this point. Is that accurate? They are not as of this moment, operating with a specific FDA approval, nor are they offering this to ordinary folks or commercially advocating it in any way. What I can say is they are working very closely with the FDA and with regulators and doing so on a mutually respectful and productive basis investing in this kind of thing and well in advance of when it's needed doesn't get you invited to a lot of Hollywood parties, but it definitely uh, enables these dedicated teams to, uh, to have this technology when it is urgently needed. In the case of Curative, just a typo on that, they were also working on infectious disease detection, solving some very difficult problems. The team has people on it collectively who have delivered 10 FDA-approved diagnostics in their careers, and infectious disease and diagnostics uh, specialists who've overseen large-scale anti-disease programs. It's, again, a very focused, uh, dedicated team. They've been supporting the mayor of LA uh, doing drive-throughs under an early FDA blessing to, uh, to go do that, and we have high hopes for their ability to scale. Do you think that this crisis has called out venture capital in a sense? You mentioned that investing in these kinds of deals doesn't get you invited to Hollywood parties as much as, say, investing in a scooter company does. Do you think that this draws attention to the fact that there's been a lot of investment in technologies that aren't quite as groundbreaking as perhaps investors would let on? Doing what we do is very hard to do. My wife likes to joke that our firm and the companies that we invest in are of the nerds, by the nerds, for the nerds, so that nerds shall not perish from the earth. But uh, uh, I do think that there is a class of companies that are unglamorous on first inspection. They certainly don't have high-growth SaaS or consumer metrics that can be inspected that are solving such foundational problems that they have a two-for-one result. One is they do solve societal-scale, global-scale, urgent problems as they come into their maturity. And two, they deliver an, an appropriate venture return for demanding LPs. Matt, Knowing what your companies are working on, and I'm sure what some of their rivals are working on, and just paying close attention, generally speaking, to the developments out there, when do you anticipate we get back to normal? Or what do you predict normal will look like later this year and maybe next year? The more we invest in resiliency in the face of these global challenges, the more likely 
normal is to resemble something that we've previously enjoyed in in society and and also to be sustainable for a larger portion of society and on a more equitable basis. That being said, in the face of rolling pandemics and a focus on health, I think that our colleagues at A16Z also back in in January were were dead on that handshakes are a thing of uh, of the past. I think until we have broader testing for all sorts of viruses and infectious diseases on a much more regular basis, especially in the face of COVID-19, that hashtag masks for all is likely to be uh, the prevailing uh, regime, even if we're not right in the middle of a wave of infection. And I think that we'll see some very significant changes to things that we used to take for granted. I don't think we're going to see movie theaters or airplanes where people are packed cheek by jowl, coughing and sneezing on a, on a February red eye, for example. But again, if we invest smartly in anticipation of those challenges, I think some of the most grave effects can be mitigated. And I, I think Bill Gates in particular has done a pretty good job of articulating what, what that future can and could look like. Right. He had that assessment recently that we'll be dealing with the situation in some way, shape or form every 20 years or so. And I guess that's when you're talking about COVID-20, COVID-21, 22, that's what we have to look forward to. But hopefully it won't lead us down this path of complete self-isolation as has happened this time. I think uh, Bill may be actually slightly more optimistic than, than I am, unless we invest much more aggressively in delivering a higher quality of life for more people around the planet with less use of resources, we're going to have more people, whether it's in China or, or Africa or South America, impinging on natural reservoirs of, of viruses and other infectious organisms, uh, what are technically called zoonoses, diseases with animal origin. And this might be once every 10 years or once every, every seven years. I think we can all be investing in things at, at a VC level, at a, a state level, at federal and international levels in not having that happen, but it takes willpower and it takes focus to do that. Matt, thank you so much for making time for us. And I hope to talk to you again very soon. Really was my pleasure and feel privileged to have a chance to talk to smart people who really understand the nuances of a lot of the stuff that we do. Thanks for listening to another episode of Strictly VC. We hope you enjoyed it. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it on Apple, Spotify, and other fine podcasting platforms. If you haven't subscribed to our Strictly VC newsletter, you can do this at strictlyvc.com. It's really amazing stuff. You won't want to miss it. Take care and see you next week.